The book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. All right. Okay. <clears throat> um, 16 chapters, 433 verses, 9,400 plus words. The author is Paul. He says it right there in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, in, it's approximately 58 AD. That's pretty much the common date most people are going to give it. Uh, around 58 AD. Um, <clears throat> and you'll notice, uh, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. It's very interesting that every single letter to the church from now, from Romans to all those churches that he writes to, uh, they all begin with the word Paul. Um, that's very important. Uh, they all begin with Paul. So, um, what do we got here? You want to tell them? Uh, you want to tell them they're in two, 101? Yeah, just tell them they're in 101. I saw some of the guys come in. Just tell, uh, Chris, go up and tell them that they're down the hallway. Yeah, just they're down the hall. I apologize for that. Um, every letter to the church begins with Paul. Paul is the wise master builder. According to 1 Corinthians 3.10, he says, I'm the wise master builder. I am laying the doctrines of the New Testament church. If you want to flip to chapter 11 of Romans, and look at verse 13, Paul gives himself a few names. Romans 11.13, he calls himself the, uh, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. So he calls himself the apostle of the Gentiles. An apostle is a messenger. So he's the messenger to the Gentiles, right? 1 Timothy 2.7, he calls himself the teacher of the Gentiles. Uh, if you look at Romans 15, Romans 15, 15, um, actually verse 16, and we can jump in there, Romans 15, 16, he says, I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's God's minister in this age. He's a teacher of the Gentiles. He's a minister to the Gentiles. The New Testament church is predominantly Gentile. Now we have some, some Jews that are getting saved and made part of the body, but the flavor of the church primarily is Gentile. So here's the big takeaway. You can study it all, but you follow Paul. <laughs> you can study the whole Bible, but Paul is your final authority when it comes to church doctrine. All right? You can drive your car, you could drive your car all over the place, but you park in your driveway. You got me? You could put your car all over the place, and you could ride your pen all over uh, the book of. Uh, Matthew, you could ride your pen all over the book of Isaiah, you could ride your fingers all over the book of Leviticus, but when you want the doctrine of the New Testament church, where you really want to park and learn and study and see where you live, you park your car in your driveway, because that's where you live. Where you live is Romans to Philemon as a believer. That's where you live. That's the part of the Bible you should know the best. That's where you kind of park because that's where we get the information and the blueprint for this thing called the New Testament church, which is different than the Old Testament economy, which is different than tri tribulation affairs. The church is a unique thing God is doing right now. And Paul is our apostle during this age. Now let's go back to Romans 1.7. That makes sense? All right, amen. Give me some participation today. I'll take, some, I'll take as many amens as I can get. Romans 1.7. <clears throat> Please notice to whom the book of Romans is addressed. To all that be in Rome. It's interesting. In Corinthians, he talks about the saints at Corinth, at Ephesus. Here it's to all that be in Rome. The book of Romans is addressed to the center of the Gentile world, Rome, Rome. We ended the book of Acts last week. Where do we end? In Rome. And the book of Romans starts 
in Rome, addressing those that are in Rome. Why? Rome is the world system that is in power at the coming of Jesus Christ. She's in power at the first coming. She's going to be in power at the second coming. She's still in power. She's never stopped being in power. Right? In Daniel chapter 2, we're not going to flip there, but in Daniel 2, you get, I'm just going to write the reference down. In Daniel 2, you get that image, right? And that image lays out all the times of the Gentiles. And the last kingdom of Daniel's image is Rome. Okay? That's the last major kingdom. Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and then Rome. You know something? That kingdom is not destroyed yet. The head of gold goes away. The breastplates pass away. The, 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 the loins and the legs pass away. But that last kingdom doesn't pass away and get destroyed until that stone is cut out without hands and strikes it. It hasn't been destroyed yet. We went from pagan political Rome to papal pious Rome. She's still in charge. She's still got power. The kings of the earth still bow down and worship, you know, the grand poobah over there. And um, guess what I'm trying to say to you is this. Here's the, here's the big takeaway. This is the world kingdom we're all in until Jesus comes again. That's why this book of doctrine says, to all that be in Rome, to everybody that's subject to this world power, living under this world domination, living in the wake of this system, that's where we are, folks. Right? Yes, in the beginning, she was that roaring lion, putting people on the rack, crushing her enemies, and now she's an angel of light, masked in pious garb with a gold tiara and a, and a pope mobile. But make no mistake, she's still in power. Watch the beast. Watch that one. Just, she's pretty quiet, but just watch her because she's just laying low till she can make her move. And you say, you got a problem with those people? No, I don't have a problem with those people, but that system's satanic. That is the devil's bride. You're Christ's bride. That's the devil's bride. And she's in power. It's a spiritual power. She exercised that power over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17 says it. She exercises power over the kings of the earth. Yeah, it's not political power like it was in the past, but it's spiritual, and it's still even political, but now it's just garbed in political, pious power. But that's the kingdom that's in power. Now go to Romans 1.16. I can see how excited you are about that. Romans 1.16. We all get so nervous when I step on those toes. Like, Don't say anything bad about them. But I'm not. I'm just saying. That's what the Bible says. I mean, the biggest accusation against that system is the Scripture. <laughs> Your brethren who translated that King, King James Bible, if you read the epistle dedicatory, you know what they thought about those people. You know they called that one the man of sin. Those what the King James translator said. They knew who that person was. They said, that's the man of sin. We've forgotten. We've forgotten. We've gotten so, like, you know, dogmatic and diplomatic that we've forgotten. But they knew who it was. They knew those popish persons were the ones that had crept in on the wares and were trying to destroy the scriptures. Learn some history. Find out about the gunpowder plot. Read about the, you know, the Oxford movement. Read about some of the stuff, the stuff, the covert activities. They put your brethren on the rack. They fed your brethren to hogs. They tore your brethren apart with hot pliers, told them to recant and swear allegiance to a wafer. So does it rile me up? Yeah, it riles me up. Because that system buried more of my brethren than any other system that probably existed hunted the Waldensians, hunted the Albigensians like they were animals, mowed down men, women, and children in the name of God, but not the God of the Bible, their own God. They hated the word of God so much, they exhumed Wycliffe's body. Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation, one of the men who started to translate the Bible into English. They hated him so much that after he was dead, they exhumed his body just so they could burn his ashes and give him a second, I don't know, gotcha. That's the anger and the hatred that goes on. And we don't feel it in America. But when you step out of these walls and you head to the third world, you see that wild, fervent, almost blind, barbaric allegiance 
to Mother Church. So please don't be caught unawares. We are in Rome even today. We're under that umbrella, so to speak, of spiritual influence. And that's who he's addressing this to. Romans 1.16. Let me get off that before some of you put me in the uh, Iron Maiden. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Key verse. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Amen. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith that is written. The just shall live by faith. Key, key verses. Please notice a nice little outline. Verse 16, Paul is saved by the gospel. Verse 9, Paul serves in the gospel. Verse 1, Paul is separated unto the gospel. That's a good little outline. Some of you could steal that, and I stole it from somebody too. All right, key phrase in this book, the righteousness of God. That's what it's about. It appears three times, the righteousness of God. You know why people don't go to heaven? You know why they go to hell? They don't have the righteousness of God. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. The reason why somebody goes to hell, they're not right with God. They need righteousness. Righteousness delivereth from death. And the book of Romans is how you get the righteousness of God by faith as a free gift. That's the miracle of the book. And so the key message is, here's the theme, justification by faith. How do we get that righteousness, that legal declaration of innocence? By faith. The just shall live by faith. Not your faith, but his faith. It's something different going on here. Romans is the book of doctrine for the New Testament church. My son Stephen asked me, just uh, maybe yesterday, or was it today? I forget. The days blur together. He said, Daddy, if there's one book you would know if they took our Bibles away, what would you want to know? The book of Romans. That's the book, that's like the textbook for the church. Many years ago, I told my kids, I've backslidden terribly with this, but I tried to memorize the whole book of Romans. I got up to chapter 9, and then I had children, you know, and it threw me off. But every day I'd drive into work with my wife, and we'd recite the verses, and I used to be pretty good. I used to be able to recite Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I get, you know, shaky around 5, 6, 7, 8. I got into 9, and then I started having children. And you know how that goes. But I, I want to pick that back up because I thought if they ever took my Bible away, I'd want to know Romans because that would be like my blueprint for the church. All the doctrines are there. Doctrine is the first reason God gave us the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine first. So Romans is the first letter to the church, a letter full of doctrine. And Romans answers the ancient question, how should man be just with God? They asked that question in the book of Job. In the oldest book of the Bible, Job 9.2, they say, but how should man be just with God? Romans has the answer. And Jesus Christ is portrayed as the Savior of the world in the book of Romans, right? And that's pretty easy to remember that. So the breakdown on your sheet is very easy. First two-thirds, 1 to 11, doctrinal. Last third, 12 to 16, practical, and we'll break that down a little more. So let's go to chapter 1. We're in chapter 1. Let's break it down. Let's pull some things out of Romans, all right? Let's start with chapter 1. In chapter 1, I'll put some headings here to make it look like I'm teaching you something. All right? <clears throat> chapter 1 gives us the natural man. What's the mindset of a Gentile? All right? How do you deal with a Gentile? A lot of the people you deal with are Gentiles. So how do we deal with them? All right? Chapter 1. If you look at verses 18 and 20, you see God is revealed to the Gentile. You say, what about the guy in the bush? What about the guy who never heard? They've heard. <laughs> the Bible talks about creation being a line that goes out throughout the whole world. Romans verse 19 and 20 says that the natural creation reveals to the Gentile the Godhead and God's power. They can actually look at the creation with an honest heart and see the triune God and his power to create all these things. That's amazing. They can look at, they can look at the tripartite nature. They can see threes in creation. If you look at creation long enough, you see everything's in threes. 
You got time, you got space, you got matter. You got time, past, present, and future, three. You got space, like length, uh, width, and depth, right? You got matter, solid, liquid, gas. You go on and on. You got a family, it's mom, dad, children. You can't beat it, right? It's always going to be three, right? Everything comes down to three. And if an honest Gentile just looks at the world around him and sees the sun and says, let me study the sun. It's got light rays. It's got heat rays. It's got itinic rays. Whoa, it's three. Everything comes down to three. You want to get a glass of water? Water. What's necessary for life? You get liquid water, ice water, you got an ice, and you got a gas, vapor. Everything comes down to three. And if you looked at creation, you could see that, and that could lead you to God with an honest heart. The Gentile does that. Which means that you, as a witness, can use the natural world to witness to a Gentile. Paul did it in Acts chapter 17. When he's talking to those Gentiles in Athens on Mars Hill, he starts by pointing to creation. So there's something to that, right? You walk up to a Gentile who knows nothing about the Bible and say, you know, the Bible says you might get somewhere, but you might be a little more effective if you start with something that they might be able to relate to and understand. Amen. All right? So God is revealed. That's one. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> then God is rejected. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. You know why in verse 22 they professed themselves to be wise? You know what the problem with the Gentile world is? You know what the Greeks seek after? Wisdom. The Jew requires a sign, but the Greek seeks after wisdom. You know what we Gentiles worship? We worship education. And I'm quote-unquote educated. I've got letters after my name. You know what they mean? M-U-D, right? They don't mean anything as far as God is concerned. Education without salvation is damnation, somebody said. And Greeks worship education, even in the church. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you study the Bible? I one time sent something out to a church just to see what they would say, just to, just to play around and see what they would say. They wanted to know, where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to cemetery? Right? They wanted to know, you know, where'd you study? What, 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 what school are you affiliated with? What's your alma mater? Find out what alma mater means. Might open your eyes to some interesting things, what alma mater means. All right? Uh, verse 23, then God is replaced. God is revealed, 18 to 20. God is rejected, verse 21. And then God is replaced, verse 23. They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and bee, forfeited beasts and creeping things. That looks to me like the opposite of evolution. They're worshiping nature. They went from God to man. And at the end of this thing, they're following bugs. I think that's what they want to serve you soon, right? Bugs, great source of protein. They want to start serving bugs. In Europe, they're serving bugs instead of burgers. They're serving bug burgers. Don't invite me, all right? But this is what's happening. This is the opposite of evolution is happening. This is the de-evolution of man. When they replace God, they end up worshiping who knows what. Have you noticed, I heard somebody point this out. It really struck me. How many sports teams are named after animals? Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And uh, the dolphins and the eagles and the hornets. Why is that? Why does the world sports, why isn't it like, you know, the Michelangelos and maybe the Einsteins and the Newtons? How come the teams are going to be, you know, the bears and the Bengals? Like, why is it always animals? Isn't that strange? Strange stuff, man. How many cars are named after beasts, like a Mustang or a Firebird or a Viper or a Cougar or maybe even a little Beetle, <laughs> Red Punch Buggy, no rubber, you know. <laughs> Isn't that strange? The things we hold up are just, we're worshiping animals and beasts and bugs. Strange. It was a Gentile named Charlie Darwin who said man came from monkeys. It wasn't a Jew that said that. It was a Gentile that made that leap of stupidity. I mean, yes, stupidity, not faith, stupidity, who connected us to animals. Look at verse 25. You know what happens next in the Gentile world? It's all in the book of Romans, people. We're just going to scratch the surface tonight, but it's all in Romans. Romans will blow your mind. 
You study Romans 1 and spend the rest of your life studying Romans 1, you'll understand everything on the news you watch tonight. Romans 1, 28, 25, God now is reviled. He's thought nothing of. They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God is reviled, and you see in the rest of this chapter, what are the results of kicking God off of his throne? You want to see some of them? If I'm being deplatformed, let's go all the way, shall we? Verse 26 and 27, you know what you got? Sexual perversion. That's what happens when God is kicked off the throne. Sexual perversion, so much so that the natural use is even violated. Crimes against nature are transpiring like they're normal. The normalization of perversion, it's all in Romans 1. It's not 2023. That was written in 58 AD. They knew it back then it would happen, right? Verse 28 Atheism abounds because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Atheism is not a scientific position. It's a philosophical position. It's the heart of somebody that doesn't like a holy, omnipotent God with whom they have to answer. For the same reason thieves don't like policemen, atheists don't believe in God. And I just trace it all the way back. So what happens? God is revealed. God is rejected. God is replaced. God is reviled. And number five, the number of death is 28. God gives them a reprobate mind. He says, I, it says at the end of 28, he gave them over to a reprobate mind, a mind that is corrupt, degenerate, and shameless. And that's where we're living right now. That's where we are. That's the plight of the Gentile. And I was a Gentile. I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm a Christian. Because in the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're one in Christ. But that's who I was. I ain't got no problem slamming my ancestors because I was a dirty pig. That's where I came from, a pig pen. That's what we are. Romans 2, though, Romans 2 gives us the moral man. Where Romans 1 gives us the Gentile, Romans 2 shows us the Jewish mindset, the moral mindset. You see verse 17? Behold, thou art called the Jew. So Paul is addressing the Jew who knows the law. That's the audience and the focus of chapter 2. You see verse 18 and 19? You know what that Jewish mindset is like? He says, verse 19, you're confident that thou art thyself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. The Jew looks down on the Gentile. That's how the Jew thinks of Gentiles. They're barbarians, right? They're heathen. That's the attitude. And if you look at verse 28 and 29, he says, he's not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. You know what the problem with the Jew is? He looks good on the outside. He's circumcised. Something's been done to his flesh, so he thinks he's all right with God. But on the inside, God says, you're rotten. Your heart isn't right. So you got all your phylacteries and you got all your accoutrements and you got your prayer shawl and you got your hair cut and you're wearing black and you got your shawl and your big hat and you're walking down Borough Park like a gazing stock and you got that pride because look how different I am. And God says, that's not really what I'm looking for. I'm looking at the heart. Your heart has not been circumcised. Your heart's not been changed. Right? That's the problem. They look good on the outside. You see, if you look at verse 1 to 3, I'm not going to read all these verses, but in verses 1 to 3, the moral man, the Jew, he likes to judge others, but not himself. That's a disease called hypocritus. Hypocrites. Right? Isn't that what Jesus called the religious people of his day? Right? Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. What? Because you make clean the outside of the cup, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. That's the moral man. That's the hypocrisy. That's the double standard. And here's what he does in verse 21. He says, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? 
Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? (laughs) Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that makest thy, uh, thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? You know what Paul does? He turns the law on the moral man to expose his self-righteousness. <laughs> he says, oh, you know what he does? He gives him the good test. He says, oh, you don't think you're supposed to steal? Have you ever stolen something? Oh, no, Really? Never stole God's glory, haven't stole God's time, haven't stole God's preeminence. You think you're not given to idolatry? You never coveted anything? You never wanted something that wasn't yours? That's what Paul's doing. He's turning the law and using the law against the moral man. See, Paul engages the natural man with creation in Acts 17. He gives this great message on Mars Hill. You know how he starts? God that made the world and all things therein dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He says, you see all this creation? The one that made it ain't stuck in this box. That's how he starts. You know how Peter starts his sermon on the day of Pentecost? He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He uses scripture because his audience knows scripture. But Paul doesn't use scripture to start with when he's dealing with Gentiles. There's a great lesson in that. So what do you give the self-righteous man in 21 to 23? You give him that good test. I love the good test. (laughs) You think you're going to heaven? Yeah. Why? You think you're a good person? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Oh, yeah. How many lies do you think you've told in your life? And then you ever steal anything? Oh, no. You just told me you were a liar. And you just throw a few commandments at them. Watch them stop their mouth. Because the law was given to stop the mouth that all the world may be guilty before God. And in verse 12, you see in verse 12, the Jew had the law written down on tables of stone. You know where the Gentile has the law written? Verse 14 and 15, on his heart. That's why every society, even if they've never seen a Bible, they know it's wrong to commit adultery. They know it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to take what's not theirs. How do they know that? Because there's a work of the law written on their heart. Right? God put something in their heart that they know deep down it's wrong. And when you give them the verse, you know what happens? Their conscience wakes up and says, he's right, he's right, you're guilty, you're guilty. So when you witness to people, you got a man on the inside. You got a conscience on the inside. If you could just awaken that, they'll convict themselves. Hey, you ever tell a lie? Yeah. You know that's wrong, right? Yeah, I know that's wrong. They know it's wrong. And their conscience rises up and says, you knew that's wrong. See, I told you that was wrong. Chapter 3. Chapter 1 is the natural man. Chapter chapter 2 is the moral man. Chapter 3 is the condemnation of both men. See verse 9? 3, 9. What shall we say then? Are we better than they? No and no wise, for we are before proved, both Jews, chapter 2, and Gentiles, chapter 1, that they are all under sin. Both Gentile and Jew are lost before God. Why? Verse 10. For there uh, there is, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. The problem is the Gentile and the Jew both need God's righteousness. That's why in verse 21 and 22 of this chapter, look at it, it mentions the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, because that's what the Jew and the Gentile both need, the righteousness of God. They're both condemned. The book of Romans is like a, like a proof, like a legal treatise, where he's laying out all these different types of people. They're both guilty. Chapter 4 is the illustration. See verse 3. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? He's going to give the illustration of Abraham as a picture of our salvation. For what saith the scripture? Verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul reaches back past Isaiah, past Chronicles, reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and grabs an illustration 
before the law as what our salvation is like. Faith in what God said deemed Abraham righteous. What deems you righteous when you put faith in what God said? That's the illustration. Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the justification. The justification, 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We should all shout right there. Right? That's what gives us peace with God. Being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We have peace with God. We are legally deemed innocent. Right? That's an amazing thing. Legally, Romans 5.1. He's saying there, God imputes, he accounts to you the righteousness of God. Imputation. God declares you righteous before God when you believe the gospel. That's amazing. Apart from works. Apart from offerings, apart from going to church, you put faith, like Abraham put faith, in what seems impossible, but you just believe God like Abraham believed God. And you know what God does? God counts you righteous like an accountant kind of slides it over to your account. God slides righteousness over to your account, and you go from lost to saved because God imputed or charged to you righteousness and legally has declared you innocent in the, tri- in the tribunal of heaven. Amen. That's how you get peace with God, because before that, you were his enemy. Amen. Just God loved everybody. God was ready to throw you and your sin into hell. He wasn't just going to throw your idolatry into hell. He throws idolaters into hell. He doesn't just throw your lies into hell. He says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. We don't understand how holy God is. He's of, a, he's of purer eyes than to look on iniquity. You know what? He's at, he was at war with you. This is how he makes peace with you. Now you went from enemy to son. You went from estranged to a citizen of the house. I mean, just, because, just by faith in the gospel. That's amazing. That's amazing stuff. Now, verse 2. Trying to quote from memory. I'm going to get in trouble. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Now we get into standing in state and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 1 gives you peace with God. Verse 2 gives you the peace of God. Because once you've been declared righteous, verse 1, now you've got access to walk into that throne room whenever you need to and give God your petitions and your requests. And as a son, get what you need. You know what that gives you? Then that puts the peace of God on you. That passes understanding, Philippians says. Romans chapter 6. The identification. What shall we then say to these things? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? I mean, how do you now have fellowship with a holy God? And let me ask you another question that might make your head spin around. How is it that as far as God is concerned, you're no longer a sinner even though you sin? You understand that? Once you get here, you're not a sinner anymore as far as God is concerned. I'm just a lowly sinner. I know we say those things to make ourselves seem humble. I know that. But as far as God is concerned, you're not a sinner anymore. You're a son. How is that possible? You say, God, didn't you see what I did today? He says, what sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. Right? He doesn't see them anymore. He sees you in Christ as a son. How is that possible? He's identified you in Christ. That's where your identity is now. Verse 3 to 6, he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Not water baptism. This is spiritual baptism. You got put into Christ, and it says, his death became your death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by, by the glory of the Father, his resurrection became your resurrection. Even so, we also should walk in, res- in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You've been put into the body of Christ. Your identity is in Christ. And as far as God is concerned, your flesh is dead. As far as God is concerned, your flesh is dead. Let me say that one more time. As far as God is concerned, your flesh is dead. Now it's alive to you. You're like, it's like, it's right now on your shoulder going, I'm not dead. You know, I want this and I want that. And me want honeycombs, right? It's just like that little, that little beast. Just, I want this and I want that. And I'm not dead. I'll show you how alive I am. Just close that Bible. I'll show you how alive I am. God says, no, it's dead. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You got to reckon it dead. You got to tell yourself, no, you're dead. You can't touch that. You're dead. Dead men don't reach for stuff like that. Your tongue wants to say that nasty thing to your wife. Nuh-uh, don't say that. They're dead. This tongue is dead. Dead men don't say things like that to their wives. Put that tongue back in your mouth, right? Your eyes want to wander. You know what? God says, you're dead. You say, that's right. I'm dead. Dead men don't look at things they shouldn't look at. You reckon yourself to be dead, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You have this new identification. His death became your death, and his resurrection became yours, your resurrection. You strapped in okay? You're doing all right so far? Amen. This is Bible doctrine. This is what you're supposed to know. First book. Amen. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the separation. Oh, chapter 7. How many people have tripped and broken their necks on chapter 7? They thought it was about divorce. It's so much bigger. It's about how God separated your soul from your flesh. You know that? 7-1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that an husband is bound by the law, uh, um, how that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. You know, in the Old Testament, your soul was married to your flesh. Your soul was joined to your flesh, and you were stuck. That's why if you touched a dead body, your soul was unclean. Right? Huh? Why? Because your soul and your body were married together. God had to divorce those two things. Your soul is that woman. That woman is your soul. The husband is your flesh, and you're joined together. So what did God do? Verse 4, verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. God put your flesh to death on the cross, so you're free. Marriage only lasts as long as you're alive. Death is a divorce. You know that, right? till death do us part. So when God put your flesh on the cross and said that flesh is crucified, guess what? Your soul is free now to be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, right? That's quite an operation God did. God separated your soul from your flesh. He divorced your soul from your body so you could be joined to Jesus Christ. Pretty wild stuff. But if, but if you look at the end of the chapter, God shows you, you got two natures now. You got a new nature, but the old husband, he's still hanging around. He still wants to make trouble. Even though you're divorced, he still wants to stir up trouble. And there's too many applications in the real world that we can go into how sometimes the old life and the old husband still wants to stir up trouble. And that old divorcee still wants to stir up trouble for you, that old flesh. If you don't keep it under control, 
He'll stir up trouble. So chapter 8 gives us not a separation, but a resurrection. A new beginning that God can give you. And there are two adoptions talked about in this book, in chapter 8. See, chapter, uh, see verse 8.15. He says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That first adoption resurrects your soul. That's salvation. When that spirit of God comes inside of you and gives you peace when there was fear. Now you're not afraid anymore. God's your dad. But the second adoption is in verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. The first adoption resurrects your soul. The second adoption resurrects your body. We're, we're, now that we've been adopted once, we're waiting for that next adoption when God doesn't just take our soul, He takes our body right? He resurrected our soul, gave us new life in Christ. Pretty soon, he's going to resurrect this, this corpse and change it from death to life, right? And then it's going to be complete. That's the hope. Amen, amen, amen. Oh, may it come soon. Those of you that are young and nothing hurts yet, you're like, ah, what are these old people? Buy? Ah, you just wait. Hopefully you don't have to. Chapter 9 to 11, Israel. How does Israel fit into this plan, right? And <clears throat> the way I see this, <clears throat> is you got Israel past, chapter 9, present, chapter 10, future, chapter 11. Chapter 9 is past, 31, chapter 9, they stumbled at that stumbling stone, past tense. They stumbled. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And they stumbled at that rock of offense. They tripped over Jesus Christ in the past. Chapter 10 is the present, Israel in the present. Verse 3 of chapter 10, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In the past, they stumbled. You know what they are today? Their problem today is they're self-righteous. They want to establish their own righteousness. All the, you know, praying to the wall and, you know, walking to the temple, you know, and their different plates. And that, in fact, they won't push a button on an elevator. They'll have somebody else push the button on the elevator. You know, they'll go into Sloan Kettering. And we got the Sabbath elevators in Sloan Kettering. You don't have to push the buttons on those elevators. They're the special Sabbath elevators. Come to Sloan Kettering with us. You'll see the, the Sabbath day elevators. Isn't that amazing? That's hypocrisy. You know what that is? Self-righteousness. I'll ride the elevator, but I don't push the button. I'll get a Gentile to push the button. It's just, I mean, Eli's lived it. He knows. It's just it's silly stuff. It's like crazy, right? That's the present. The future is in chapter 11, verse 25 to 27. I'm not going to read all these verses, but in the future, Israel is saved by Jesus Christ. In the past, chapter 9, they stumbled. In the present, they're self-righteous. In the future, so all Israel shall be saved. For there shall come out of Zion a deliverer which shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I shall take away their sins. Amen. He's already taken away mine, but he's going to take away theirs as a nation. Chap now that's those first two-thirds. And I'm going to use my last few minutes here. I can erase this, I hope. If not, watch the YouTube video. All right? But uh, let me give you... Chapter 12 to 16. I could do it. Chapter 12, it all changes now. We go from the way of salvation to the walk of service. Chapter 12, verse 1, is the service of the saint. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's where it starts. Now we're talking about service, not sin, service. You know where service starts? Laying your life down. A sacrifice. You can't serve without... I know some of you are trying. 
but you can't serve without sacrifice. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You got to be willing to give something up to serve God. Because if God had to give up his son, you think you get a pass? Chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a rough chapter. That's the submission of the saint, of saints. What do we do with the government now? Oh boy, some of you already reached for your shotgun. What do we do with the government? Verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. It's about how we should submit to human government. We should be the best citizens around. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Now that brings up an interesting point, because when that government then starts turning to evil and asking you to do evil and partake in evil, you're not subject to that. But when that government says, hey, you know, put your garbage out on this day and pay this tribute, you know, we're supposed to be subject to that. You know, don't have your dog pee on your neighbor's lawn. Okay, I'm supposed to be subject to that. But when that government says, you can't preach in this town anymore, ah, we ought to obey God rather than men. I can't obey that. I'm not going to be subject to that. I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to be crude. But I'm not going to be subject to that. Do what you must. But I have to be subject to God. As long as it doesn't cross God, I could do it. You know? If a cop says, hey, can you go to the other side of the street? Okay. But when he says you can't go anywhere on the street, that's a problem. Because <laughs> I'm commanded to preach. So it's a there's a lot of people that take Romans 13 too far and just say the church should just be the lapdog of the state. That's not true either. We should just not obey everything, because if we obeyed everything, we'd be helping gas them in the 30s in Germany. right? If we just said the state is God, no, the state isn't God. They're a terror to the evil. As long as they're doing what they should be doing, I'm subject. But when they go tyrannical, or they turn against us, I, I can't be subject to that. I'm supposed to obey God rather than man. All right? Romans 14. The charity of saints. See verse 7? How do we handle our liberty? The Bible says, oh, Romans has got everything in it, man. Romans like, like it's going 12 rounds with God in Romans. He hits you in your mind, and then he hits you in your gut. He says, for none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. He's saying, guys, somebody's always watching you. No man is an island. So what does he say? Verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know, and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He's saying if you're saved, you have liberty to do whatever you want. You do. You can do whatever you want. You have liberty. But in verse 15 he says, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let's say your brother is convinced that meat is not supposed to be eaten. You're supposed to be a vegetarian. God doesn't want you eating meat. Let's just say he believes that with all his heart. Don't go over his house with Burger King. All right, don't sit down, oh, we're going to have a Bible study, brother. I got my Whopper Jr. What do you got, your Beyond Meat over there? Okay, I got real meat right here. No, hey, if you got to eat asparagus that day, eat asparagus. He says, destroy not thy brother. He said, but I got liberty. I could eat this burger. Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if we receive with thanksgiving. I know, but don't destroy your weak brother. He says, destroy not thy brother with thy meat, right? He says in verse, um, your liberty should never become license that causes somebody else to stumble. Verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. 
Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he allowed. What's the matter, brother? I can have this. I can drink this. I can eat that. I can go there. I can watch this. I've got liberty in Christ. I know, but just have it to yourself before God. Don't make everybody else around you stumble. You know, we start pounding our chest and give me liberty or give me death. You're being selfish, brother. You think you know better? No, you don't know better. You're a baby. You're, you're whining about, I want what I want. I should get what I deserve to get. No, God says sacrifice for somebody else. When your liberty is more important than your love for others, you've lost your charity. And charity is everything to the church. If we can't lay our lives down for each other, what are we? We're no better than, a, than the Elks Lodge. Chapter 15. The maturity of saints. You see the progression here? It's getting harder and harder. Service that starts with sacrifice, submission, charity, maturity. It's like God's got a progression here. 15.1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. You know what the mature believer is going to do? He's going to take the hit for someone else. That's the mark of a mature Christian. Not that you could tell me how tribulation salvation is different than millennial salvation, that's different than the eternal plan and all that stuff that makes you get so intellectually titillated on your Larkin chart. I'm glad you understand your Larkin chart, but if you get your toes stepped on and you whine and leave the church, you're not spiritually mature, you're in diapers. If you can't get your toes stepped on and your feathers ruffled and just eat it for God, you're a baby. You belong in the nursery. A mature believer can take his lumps, be defrauded, be, you know, I, I know I should, I deserve, I know that, but you just keep going for the cause of Christ and you take the hit Amen. for someone else. Amen. And we don't like to do that because we're big, fat, stinking babies. That's just the truth. I'll put myself in that bucket. The mature Christian can take the hit. Verse 2. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Are you willing to take the hit for another saint? That brother, that brother didn't do this, that sister didn't do that, she didn't say hello to me this way, she didn't say... You, you want your bottle, right? You, you want to get changed? Are you wet? Are you tired? Right? You want me to burp you? You're a baby. But you don't know what he said. They're so inconsistent. They're so this, they're that. They're so... Okay, come on. Nap time. I'll put the little... I'll put your banky down. I'll lay you down. You can take a nice little night-night, right? I'll put, you know, whatever we put on the iPad. You go night-night, and you just come back a little bit. When you wake up, you could be a big boy again. Put your big boy pants on one leg at a time, right? We're not supposed to be babies, Jesus Christ was reviled, defrauded, backstabbed, abandoned by his own men at his most needy hour. And he took them back. <laughs> he brought them a fish dinner on the shore. His children, have you any meat? He was calling the guys ashore that had just fled away from him a few days prior. He wasn't just like, hey, remember me? The guy you dissed back there, you dipped on me in the garden? Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. I got a bone to pick with you. No, there was no black book. There was no account. There was none of that stuff. There was forgiveness. There was long-suffering. The Savior took the hit. Why? So you could be better. Oh, we don't like that message. Good preaching, Mother Pat. We don't like that. That's, that's, that's right where the rubber meets the road. That's Christianity. Not, well, I understand that Romans is divided chapters 1 to 11 and chapters 12 to 16. I'm glad you could tell me the divisions, but if you can't live the divisions, you are an infant in the church. Verse 3 says, For even Christ pleased not himself. Oh, that stings, Paul. <laughs> but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee have fallen upon me, fell on thee. That's the mature saint. If Jesus Christ took the hit for his people, why won't you take the hit for someone else? All right, chapter 16. Last one. Oh, I took a blue pen. 
the commendation of saints. See what chapter 16 starts with? <clears throat> I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cancaria. The commendation of the saint. This is the reward that comes at the end of a walk of faith. The service and walk of faith ends in a reward. Paul is commending people. He's uh, commending the saints at Rome. He's praising them. He's giving his approval. He's actually honoring them in the word of God. Do you see the picture? The commendation doesn't come at the end of chapter 11. Because the end of chapter 11 is just the way of salvation. The commendation comes at the end of chapter 16. That's the end of a walk of service. You don't get rewarded for just getting saved. That just gives you eternal life. You get a reward when you live that life now as a Christian and serve God with that life he's given you as a Christian. And at the end of that life, God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's a commendation from God. That's God's applause. That's his honor. That's his verbal accolades that he gives to you. That's what he does at the end of the book, right? It ends with our commendation because that's where this whole thing ends, with a commendation. So go back to Romans 1.1, and I got just two big ideas from the book of Romans. And they're not long. I think Romans beat us up enough, kind of beat me up. Here's the first big idea. God's doctrine always precedes your deeds. God's doctrine always precedes your deeds. See, 1 to 11 was doctrine. 12 to 16 was your practice. 1 to 11 is doctrinal. 12 to 16 is practical. That's the outline. The outline teaches us the doctrine has to come before the deeds. In other words, you can't do what you should unto God until you know what you should about God. Amen. That's why Romans is laid out that way. It doesn't start with love your brother. It starts with God did this, God did that, God did this, God did that, and then here's how you should act now. When you learn about God and what he's like and what he's done, that should change how you live before God. That's the way Romans is laid out because that's how this thing is supposed to work because if your doctrine doesn't affect your deeds, then your doctrine is worthless. If you could give me five verses on the judgment seat of Christ and you go home and raise Cain with your family every day you come home from church, what good is your doctrine? If you could tell me why the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong and you could debunk a Mormon and you could challenge a Catholic and you could fix, you know, a Seventh-day Adventist and get their doctrine on straight, show them why we don't worship on the Sabbath. But when you go to church, you're a lying hypocrite who's been cruel to his wife, cruel to his, her husband, cruel to the kids, nasty to the neighbor. What good is your doctrine? It hasn't changed your deeds. What you know about God should change how you act before God. If you know the doctrine of incarnation, that God himself humbled himself to take on flesh, right? That's a doctrine, right? Why won't you humble yourself? How could you grasp the doctrine of incarnation that the almighty God who was holy and harmless and separate from sinners became us and you can't lower yourself for somebody else? There's a disconnect. Something's not lining up right. I mean... If you understand what Jesus Christ did for you to save you, he did everything, right? Amen? Amen. Why won't you do anything for him? How, how come that doctrine is not affecting your deeds? How come that input is not giving me any output? There's a breakdown somewhere. Your doctrine should affect your deeds. What you know about God should affect how you live before God. Romans lays that out. And finally... The last thing I want to say. Oh, C.T. Studd, he said it very well. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice could be too great for me to make for him. If I really grasped the gospel, if I really grasped justification by faith that God did everything so I could be saved without works, and you won't give God a minute of your time, Amen. Something, something's not 
lining up there. <laughs> Something ain't comporting, right? There's a breakdown somewhere. And here's the second big idea. This great, great book of, of Romans. I was reading quotes about what people said about Romans. Uh, Coleridge was a poet and a great English writer, called it the most amazing book ever written, and people just sing the praise. Luther said Romans was amazing. All these people just, oh, Romans, 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 it's such an amazing book, a masterpiece. You know how it starts? Paul, a servant. So here's my second big takeaway. Don't ever get bigger than a servant. Don't ever get bigger than a servant. This profound book has a humble author. Starts with Paul, a servant. He's going to write things that make people's heads spin. He's going to write things that just people have marveled over. He lays out this masterful treatise of justification by faith and all these masterful doctrines that make people wonder and stand in awe of God. You know what Paul starts with? It ain't me. I'm, a, I'm just a servant. You want to do something great for God? You want to do something amazing? You want people to marvel at the work God does with you? you got to start the same way. I'm just a servant. Don't ever get bigger than a servant. And then maybe God might do something with you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you for this time. And we pray that the book of Romans might burn in our hearts, Lord. Help us to live it, believe it, share it with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.